1: President Biden saying it's going to be a tough call on whether to order U.S. troops to get vaccinated. It's funny, Tim. I actually thought the military was already getting vaccinated, but that's not the case.
0: No, it's not. And and look, I think this is something that a lot of organizations are struggling with right now. To what extent can you actually mandate a vaccination?
1: Yeah, exactly. So we've got that going on. We've got global cases of the virus topping 150 million. India remaining at the epicenter of the pandemic. They reported record new infections today. There's a lot going on. Let's get to it with Dr. Ian Lusbader, as we always do on our Fridays, clinical professor of medicine, at NYU Langone on the phone in Michigan on this Friday. Uh, Dr. Lesbader, nice to have you back with us. How are you?
2: Good, good. Always a pleasure. Happy Friday, guys.
1: Oh, my God. This has been, I, I can It's been a hard week. Um, help me out here, because we did have a headline, too. Reuters reporting that the uh, president is set to ban most travel to the U.S. from India. So I was having a conversation with someone, and it's like, look, we're doing so great. And he's like, my wife? She's from India. We're not doing so great. The world is still having a tough time and we don't get through it, all of us, until everybody gets through it. Um, I know we talk to you about this kind of almost every week at this point, but uh, give me your thoughts on this, especially as we watch what's going on in India and some other parts of the world.
2: So as we talked about last week, and really we're at the uh, head of the curve, uh, we knew that India was erupting and uh, I don't think we've uh, anywhere near seen the top. You know, we're estimating 150 million global cases. I think all of these are really gross underestimates. I think the ability mm. for many countries to track the real number of cases is flawed. In 1918, in the Spanish flu, it was estimated about a third of the world's population uh came down with the Spanish flu high, higher mortality than we're seeing now uh, and that was before air travel was really widespread so I think this is really sort of the uh, tip of the or the tip of the iceberg is as what we're seeing and I do think uh, even though it may be politically incorrect I think um, a travel ban even though that's very imperfect is probably very reasonable to do based on uh, what we're seeing in
0: India why is that is that because of variants
2: Yeah, so I think India has a number of problems. One, you know, for the skeptics of public health measures, uh, this is really an example of what happens when there's really a systemic failure of Hmm. public health measures. So, one, very low vaccination rate, under 10%. Two, uh, super spreader events that were really sanctioned by the government. And three, perhaps maybe cremation. You know, when you're burning particulate matter, wood, smoke, variants, we know that there's higher uh, complications in areas of pollution or smoke. So it's possible that may also be playing a role. But I think the key thing is lack of vaccination mm-hmm. and there's well, no quick solution to that.
0: My question also, though, it has to do with why a travel ban would be the right thing for the United States right now, given that we do have have COVID running rampant through the US as well. Is it is the variants element the concern that there could be a different strain of COVID brought over from another country?
2: Oh for sure. Now we already have here uh, in Michigan where I am uh, at at a college graduation uh the B1617 variant. We've seen some cases in California. Uh that is one of the dominant strains in India and the problem is it may be somewhat resistant to the Pfizer vaccine. It's unclear. We're getting some data on that. And it also seems to be more infectious that it spreads more easily. So there are a lot of, you know, potential issues here and uh you know, some of those cases are also being seen in China. So we're, we're nowhere done with uh, what's going on.
1: So how does it potentially impact the United States?
2: Well, I, you know, I think the United States, we're going to be okay. You know, we, we unfortunately, about 30% of uh, adults under 35 have declined the vaccine. They have vaccine hesitancy. So we, we have to do a little bit better there. One of the reasons, for example, we can't mandate vaccines generally is the feeling that it's under an emergency use authorization, not FDA approved. So to make people take something that's not FDA approved does potentially um, cause a problem. So that may be one reason why we can't mandate it, although I, we'll have to see what happens with that. But I think in the US we have about 40, going on 50% of adults vaccinated. I think we're going to be okay, but I'm not sure globally that's going to be the same case.
0: Hey, Dr. Lesbader, I'm, I'm I'm wondering about if we're going to just continue to see you know a few weeks ago we were talking about what was happening in brazil now we're talking about what's happening in india is this just going to keep going from one country to another country because of so many countries aren't vaccinated right now is this how the pandemic plays out over the next year
2: absolutely you know this is exactly what happened well not exactly but very similar to what happened in the 1918 spanish Mm -hmm. flu Basically, it, it went around the country exactly as it did in the United States. You know, we saw New York a year ago as the epicenter, and people in the Midwest thought, "Oh, we're safe." Now it hit both coasts and the and the Midwest, uh, and then it went from country to country. That was primarily in. You know, World War II with uh, troop ships uh, going to Europe and so forth, that probably helped spread it. But I think we're going to see a continued multiple waves. And unfortunately, without vaccination, you get mutation. And with mutation, you can get resistant uh, viruses.
1: Right, which is why... Yeah. And we're also talking about booster shots and something we maybe we'll get into in the next block. Ian, sit tight for a second, and we'll come back to you uh, in just a moment. We are talking with Dr. Ian Lospader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone uh, from Michigan. But I do wonder, like, does it ultimately, if we don't have enough vaccinated, does it come back to us? I know, Dr. Lespeter saying we should be okay, but I do wonder.
0: Yeah, I do wonder too, especially with all the hesitancy that we're seeing, right? The people who wanted to get vaccinated have already gotten vaccinated.
1: And I'm having a lot of conversations with people who are like, I'm not going to do I'm this. not. You're not. No. I am. I am. I am like That's amazed uh, in different walks of my yeah. life. And and I'm respecting it because everybody has to make the decision they feel comfortable with. But i um, it, 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 it makes sense when he gives me 30% under age of 35 declining right. the vaccine. I get it. I get that number. Right,
0: it makes sense. Well, let's get right back to it with Dr. Ian Lustbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone's Medical Center. Joining us now on the phone from Michigan, Dr. Lustbader, I want to just talk about reaction to the vaccine because this is a question that Carol and I have been talking about a lot and it's a question we've been asking and I know a lot of people have been asking each other, hey, what was your reaction to the vaccine? Why are some people having such significant reactions to their second shot or even their first shot and others aren't and i'll share the example of my wife she got the moderna shot after the second shot she was really sick for you know about 12 hours and like nausea vomiting and i got the the pfizer shot and after my second shot i was i was achy but it, it really went away after uh, about 36 hours so uh charlie
2: uh pellet as usual uh right right on the money and, and you as well Tim. uh so vaccines and people's responses, um, not only to the vaccines, but to the COVID infection itself are very complex. And I I don't have a simple answer for you. There's some data um, that people who've had the virus and then get vaccinated, you know, there's a fair number of people who have asymptomatic COVID may have a more dramatic response. Hmm. Um, and, And the composition of these vaccines is somewhat complex. You do have This RNA, that's uh, at least for the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, surrounded by uh, what's called the liposome or or a lipid coat. And people, any vaccine, mumps, measles, rubella, tetanus, shingles vaccine, all of these vaccines that we give people typically do cause achiness at the site and fever. I mean, you're you're recognizing a foreign object, a foreign response, uh, uh, an invader. And, of course, the body has a variable response to it. What I would say, though, is that most of these are really relatively minor, uh, limited usually to uh, a day or two or less, and that even people who are on some immunosuppression, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, other medications, of course, talk to your doctor, seem to do well with it. So uh, my answer would really be individual variation, the component of the vaccine, and just like a variable response to COVID. do do very well. 1% do not. And in some ways, it's hard to predict exactly why part of it is genetics. uh, But part of it is expected. Any vaccine, any foreign substance, you usually get some immune response. And that's good. You want an immune response.
1: But does it mean anything if you don't have some kind of response to a vaccine? If you don't kind of feel anything? Does that mean something different in terms of your ability to fight off uh, COVID or some, some other kind of virus?
2: No, no, okay. not necessarily. Some people breeze right through it. Uh, I, some patients have asked about doing testing after. We don't really recommend that. We don't really do that. Most of the IgG um, COVID exposure shows nuclear capsid antibodies, which means the infection. You can, and some people, if they're really concerned, Check antibodies for spike protein. All the patients I've seen who've had the vaccine do show spike protein. We don't do it routinely. So again, I think the data is very good. As we said, out of 200 million shots, only about 5,000 cases of people after either both shots or or the single shot J and J, that is, but the two uh, RNA shots, uh, have come down with COVID. So pretty effective.
0: Is there any data up to now that shows a different reaction or different reactions in general following Pfizer versus Moderna? Because there is that anecdotal sort of thing that people say, right, oh, I hear, you know, this shot's worse than the other shot. But is there any data to back that up?
2: Not that I'm aware of, you know, they're very similar uh, technology, the messenger RNA technology with uh, encased in, in a liposome. And really what I would say is because it's so unpredictable. Uh, we should not really be asking for one or the other. They're all really quite effective. As you have pointed out correctly, don't don't get uh, lax. In other words, we really need two shots, either three or four weeks apart, for, for maximal immunity. And that's even a week or two after the second shot. You know, J&J, somewhat different. You still have to wait for that. Um, but, no, having a fever, chills, uh, does not necessarily make a difference. There are some people who just don't form antibodies. We see this with hepatitis B vaccine, mumps, measles, rubella. You can give people several shots and some people just don't form antibodies. Not quite clear why that is.
1: Mm. All right, good to know. Um, Congratulations on the graduation. Thinking it might be your son, but um, hope you, uh, well, congratulations
2: engineering. Thanks so much. Really impressive. Have a good
1: week, guys. Yeah, you have a great weekend. Stay safe. Uh, Of course, Dr. Ian Lustbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone, on the phone in Michigan today, always kind of provides clarification.
0: Also good to know he's traveling.
1: He is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's vaccinated.
1: We're hearing that from folks.
3: We are. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Another one of our most read stories on the Bloomberg, it's about how President Biden's proposed tax hikes are creating a wealth advisor frenzy. It's getting a little nutty out there, Tim.
0: It is, especially if you have a ton of money. Joel <laughs> Weber is editor at Bloomberg Businessweek, and he joins us on the remote from Brooklyn. Laura Davison is congressional tax reporter for Bloomberg News on the phone from Washington, D.C. Joel, nothing has been you know, put into policy yet. Nothing has been made law yet. But that hasn't stopped people from freaking out and from advisors uh, from playing therapist
4: oh man the freak out has (laughs) has really begun um and yeah i think everyone is just itching to understand like what could happen what might happen what the odds are what they should be doing now and if you have enough money to have a financial advisor um you are calling them (laughs) maybe on (laughs) maybe multiple times and so Laura had the great idea to, to talk to a couple of financial advisors and get their advice for clients right now. And Laura, tell us what you learned.
5: So basically what advisors are saying is, you know, hurry up, let's make a plan. And then we've got to wait and see what Congress actually <laughs> does. This plan that Biden put out this week is going to go over uh, a bunch of revisions, a bunch of negotiations, and probably is not going to look uh, exactly like what the president proposed. So they're looking to pass. Some sort of plan, you know, September, October, but that could slip. So really, there's only going to be a couple months at the end of the year uh, before these tax increases likely take effect. So wealth advisors are saying, look, if you are going to have to uh, sell any assets, take any capital gains, and pay taxes on those gains, let's do that now versus waiting uh, for the next couple of years because that capital gains rate, you know, it will likely increase. You know, it's 20% now. Biden has proposed almost 40%. So they're saying, hey, you know, if you've got some shares that you're going to sell, let's sell them now. Pay the pay the tax at the lower rate. They're even saying if you have uh, some um, some assets that have really appreciated recently, you know, think like Tesla stock or Bitcoin. Go ahead, sell those, buy it back. And then you've locked in those gains Mm. at the lower rate because who knows what the future beholds.
0: But it does still seem like, Laura, there is even uncertainty in doing that because you uh, and uh, our colleague Ben Ben Steverman in the piece raised the possibility that there could be even retroactive uh, changes. Correct.
5: So this is the risk here. You know, Congress could say this is totally within their purview. You know, hey, the tax increases already took effect January one of 2021, uh, which would mean any sort of planning would would essentially be moot at this point, and you could <laughs> actually end up uh, hurting yourself here. Uh, both Biden advisors as well as congressional Democratic advisors have said that they don't like doing this, that this isn't their plan, but you know, there's always that risk out there until until the bill is signed. The thing
1: I think is interesting is what about the IRS uh, putting more scrutiny on the wealthy when it comes to their taxes? Kind of taking maybe a deeper look. President Biden has proposed uh, $80 billion for the IRS to strengthen enforcement in the coming decade. How worried are they about that, Laura?
5: This could be a huge sea change. The the wealthy and really taxpayers at every level have seen audits drop precipitously really in the past decade as the IRS has had its budget cut. Um, they're basically proposing to double or even triple uh, the IRS enforcement budget, bring in new auditors, bring in new data tools to find fraud. And also, one thing that's interesting is having uh, for, uh, for bank accounts, having some of the inflows and outflows from bank accounts reported to the IRS so they have a little bit more visibility on how much money investors should be reporting. This would really be a sea change and uh you know if you have a wealth advisor it's probably also a good idea to make sure you have a good accountant and tax lawyer on hand as well right make sure he's doing the right <laughs> stuff
4: and all those people right now are just like hey, the financial advisors like great i haven't heard from you forever thanks for picking up the phone and calling me um we'll, we'll come up with a plan now jerk but so so laura i want to um have a better understanding of this so it's a hurry hurry wait strategy that that they're basically um advising and and are there rainy day implications to this? Like, are they saying like, don't invest right now? Like, hold off until we know what's going on? Like, take us through the the various ways that they're actually trying to to coach people.
5: So basically, they're telling people, you know, continue as you were. If you had a you know a plan, uh, you know, continue with that plan. But if you're looking to sell something, you know, let's do it sooner rather than later. Get the deal structured so that it can happen by New Year's Eve if you want to go ahead and execute on that. Um, you know, but there's there's really so much uncertainty right now. Basically, everyone, every advisor is saying, you know, don't do anything yet. Let's just, you know, make create some options for ourselves, look at different, uh, different planning tools, and then we can make a decision once we kind of have a sense of what Congress is going to do here.
4: Okay, so I, I wanna also understand like another element and this part isn't in, in your current reporting, but I'm, I, I'd like to understand like, you know, estate tax was was potentially part of, of this first phase uh, of talk. They, they, it seems like they've tabled that, like what, what are these financial advisors, what do they have to say about this, the likelihood of a potential estate tax down the, down the road?
5: Yeah, so the estate tax right now doesn't kick in until, you know, you, um, have $11.7 million of death or twice that if you're, if you're married. Um, Biden left that out of the plan, um, likely because there's some Democrats in the Senate who would not support lowering that threshold, but he did campaign on bringing that threshold down to $3.5 million. So a lot more people would be affected by that. That is one of those elements where you could see, you know, if, if moderates and, and progressives are negotiating over different elements, that's one area, uh, ripe that progressives would say, hey, we really want to, Um, get this in here. It raises a bunch of money. It would help Biden pay for a lot of his spending proposals. So that's one area that's still in play.
0: The Tax Law and Jobs Act of 2017, the Trump tax cuts, uh, those are still pretty fresh. So what did advisors say to to you about the idea of people just kind of doing nothing and perhaps even if there are changes, doing nothing and maybe even waiting for a new administration to, to revert to rules back to today?
5: So this is uh, the other thing that that advisors are really looking at is, you know, if Republicans sweep in, you know, in 2024, you know, do we basically just have a sea change back in the other direction? Uh, which, is, as we've seen, you know, with the use of reconciliation, this partisan tool to get bills through Congress, you know, if we keep having uh, the pendulum swing one way or another, uh, we could see policy changes on tax and, and anything, you know, every four years changing significantly. Um, and this is something that uh, you know really has frustrated tax lawyers, for example, they're just f- finally getting all the details from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act into place. And now they basically have to totally undo them. And all the advice they had given their clients totally goes out the window. It's, it's very, very confusing and hectic.
1: Well, the freak out, the frenzy says to me, Laura, that the wealthy do expect some change, even if the political process may be tough, they ultimately do expect they're going to be paying more taxes. Is that a fair assessment?
5: Taxes, uh, more likely than not, are going to go up. Which which taxes, how much, who's going to be affected, that's what's going to be negotiated over the next several months. And you know who makes money along the way? The financial
0: advisors, right? <laughs> and the lawyers, too. <laughs>
5: <laughs>
1: Listen, it's a great story, and I feel like, you know, Jill, you put taxes in a story here on Bloomberg, and, like, everybody wants to read it.
4: Yeah, the I think the amount of information that we're going to be consuming on this. Like we're, we were all armchair quarterbacks for the mm-hmm. pandemic, you know, mm-hmm. on, on everything about the virus, about vaccines. And now we're entering this new phase where, you know, now we have a new administration, new stuff. And I think, you know, step up in basis is going to be like this thing that everyone is going to want to know about. So we're just going to be watching this so closely. It is such a core competency story at Bloomberg, and we'll just own this for the months to come. Such and concept. I'm sure we'll be reading more, more from Laura <laughs> like every day. <laughs> just keep it coming, Laura.
1: Explaining it all to us. Laura Davison, thank you so much. Congressional tax reporter at Bloomberg News. She's with us on the phone in D.C. Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Have a great weekend on the remote access from Brooklyn.
3: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: The Bloomberg Big Take today, it's a Bloomberg exclusive that you kind of need to be focusing on and it's a story that only we have. And today it's about the seemingly nonstop behind the scenes drama between Apollo Global Management's billionaire co-founders and what it means for investors.
0: Heather Pearlberg is a private equity reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Heather, this is quite a read. I can see why it is the Big Take today. What has been happening behind the scenes as uh, Leon Black has been uh, has has exited Apollo?
6: Well, Leon Black is sort of a, a known classicist. I mean, named the firm Apollo, and it's really starting to look a lot like a classic Greek tragedy. Hmm. Um, I mean, you have the drama, the revenge, the power grab, and at the center of it is this—you know, four hundred and fifty-five billion dollar investing powerhouse um that's really had a tumultuous year or so and leon black was just um really sort of scathed scrutinized for his ties to jeffrey epstein for most of last year moving into this year eventually sort of forced to step aside and you had his two potential successors, Mark Rowan and Josh Harris. And Mark Rowan you know, took the reins. Harris had this sort of failed bid to become CEO. And since then, he's really been sidelined. And at a bare-knuckle firm like Apollo, uh, that doesn't look good.
1: Is it, it sounds a little surprising, too, is it?
6: Well, you had these three men who were sort of leading different parts of the business. Mm. Josh Harris was always in charge of private equity. Now Apollo made this grab for Athene, the huge insurance company that has made it sort of the envy of Wall Street for getting such huge fees. And private equity is certainly a smaller part of their business. Um, And and Harris was just being kind of slowly relinquished of duties, shopping for a place in Florida. For a man who was sort of a known workaholic and really um, micromanaging into the nitty gritty of deals in the New York office, he wouldn't be moving to Florida (laughs) if he really had his pulse on the business.
0: What do employees who, who work under Harris or have worked under Harris think of that? Because there are some pretty jarring anecdotes in here about what they think.
6: Well, he wasn't known to be an easy man to work for, and that's been sort of widely reported in the past, but yeah, we did we did hear some um, tales of his underlings humming, ding-dong, the witch is dead, from The Wizard of Oz, so I guess they were relieved. <laughs> that's a little harsh wow. <laughs> <It> <laughs> to say a harsh.
5: right Drowning, right <laughs>
1: yeah exactly exactly uh, when you think about it as you you write and report you know I mean this is an individual Harris that is who has spent you report years posi- positioning himself and becoming a more public face of the company at conferences and in the media you know kind of setting the stage and it's interesting to see how things play out um and, and Leon Black, we know, has taken a big stop, step back. But what is his involvement? What are you hearing as things change and evolve?
6: Well, he really is not supposed to be involved in any investing activity anymore. You know, he cited health issues. He did. There was a story that he had kind of called into one meeting um, that was quickly reported by the media, and I think um, there's just so much scrutiny over his involvement that he'll probably stay out of it for a little while. I mean, there's some speculation that he might come back eventually, but nobody really knows in what form or what that would look like.
1: I always think about all of the stories that you and your team and others have reported at Bloomberg, you know, there's... Key senior people, they are often crucial when it comes to raising new funds, creating new funds, the relationships that they've had for years that allow them to raise new money to invest. So how does Harris having a much smaller role and maybe potentially no role at some point, how does that impact the firm, which is a publicly traded firm?
6: At some point, um, you will see how that shakes out. I mean, mm-hmm. he definitely has a relationship with big limited partners, just like all of the founders will have their own relationships with people. And, and Josh Harris is still a key man on the largest ever private equity fund that Apollo had raised, which, you know, they haven't finished investing yet. So if he were to leave, which people are speculating he will in the next year or so, that would trigger a big problem for Apollo. I mean, investors would essentially have to sign off on the fund continuing to do deals. So investing would pause or maybe even stop. And and Apollo certainly doesn't want that to happen. So he does have a little bit of leverage at the moment, too.
1: Yeah, stocks up about 13% this
5: year.
0: Hey, Heather, what did you learn specifically uh, about what Harris is doing in, in Florida and, and has been doing during the pandemic and indications just in about 30 seconds or so that he's thinking about making more permanent routes there.
6: Um, he's been spotted at a lot of different nice restaurants, riding his bike <laughs> around town in the Palm Beach area. Huh. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of people who have sort of fled New York city in the pandemic and, um, you, know, We had definitely heard that he's looking to buy a place down there. Apollo's opening offices down there. So it isn't the craziest thing, along with other firms, to kind of help retain talent. Um, but for someone like Josh, you know, this could be a sign that if mm. he wanted to sell down Apollo shares taxes wouldn't be as much as of an issue as they were in New York.
1: We'll see if we see him a lot more at sports events, too, as that opens up, because, of course, he's got Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment that he set up with Blackstone's uh, David Blitzer. Hey, great reporting, as always. And that, of course, is the Big Take story. You can find out more at Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com.
0: I'm rather in my car.
3: This is the drive to the close That punk music will drive us till the dawn On Bloomberg Radio
1: Just about 10 minutes left in today's trading session. Charlie Pellet putting it so perfectly, a late day fade here on this Friday. We are definitely off our best levels of the session and definitely off record highs for the broader market. Let's get to it with James Chakmak. He is back with us, partner and portfolio analyst. Uh, He focuses on tech stocks at the asset management firm Clockwise Capital. He's back with us on the phone in Miami. James, good to have you back with us. What a week. Tech stocks, this is your world. I'm I'm guessing you might not have gotten too much sleep this week, but sum it up for us, uh, if you would, if there is kind of a big overarching theme from some of the names that reported this week.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, We saw all the big companies uh, reporting this week, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, and I think the big overarching takeaway from those is that these companies are proving to be increasingly essential to the world, and the results certainly prove that, that not only are they essential to the way businesses operate and consumers, but they're essentially the new utilities. And that essential infrastructure that they've built is is something that's going to be virtually impossible to derail uh, for the foreseeable future. And the new companies that are coming into the market um, are uh, uh, are um, predicated on uh, leveraging the infrastructure those companies have built. So. No matter what, you know, they're here to stay, and, and there's very little that can uh, stop their momentum.
0: That said, James, it, it does seem like it was kind of the tale of two different types of companies, the big tech companies versus the small tech companies. I mean, you saw what happened with Facebook's report and Alphabet's report, Microsoft's report, and then, of course, Amazon's report. And at the same time, what happened to, to Spotify, to Pinterest, and to Twitter? Mm-hmm. So, so where's the divergence there? What's going on?
3: Yeah, what we're seeing right now, I mean, the market has gone absolutely straight up for over the last year. Every single thing that was thrown at investors was dismissed. You know, depressed earnings for 2020, um, regulatory risks, uh, the election uncertainty. You know, we had a couple of blips here and there, but it's essentially gone straight up. And then now you tack on uh, inflation concerns as we look into the coming weeks and months. Um, Obviously, some of those stocks that you just named, you know, they're higher multiple stocks and. More sensitive, but ultimately, when you do look at the underlying performance of those companies, particularly Spot, you know Spotify, that's one that we actually added to uh, on the pullback because of their audio platform mm. that they're building and, and positioning. We think, you know, relative to Apple Music, um, but the results clearly are strong. But the multiples attributed to these stocks may be uh, pricing in an increased discount factor, as you know. We have some outstanding risks as we look forward.
1: So I'm going to go through a quick laundry list. Apple, did you add to the position? Did you reduce? What's your take there?
3: Well, I'll tell you, the, uh, what we did what, when we uh, turned into the, to the new year, one of the things that we did was uh, we knew that the market was going into a rotation trade, you know, going into the travel space and airlines and, and things of that nature. But those businesses we didn't think are sustainable. So what we did was we sized up our uh, highest conviction names like Apple, like a Whirlpool, like an Amazon, like a Facebook, you know, gross them up to ten, fifteen percent position. So huge sizable weights within uh, the portfolio given our conviction of those names. So we haven't sold any um but they remain super um concentrated as part of the book. So that's we true can go through your list so that's true for yeah. so that's Apple, Amazon, yeah. who else? Facebook, Whirlpool. Those okay. are our top four. Okay. Yeah. At ten over ten percent weights each.
1: Okay.
0: How does the rest of the year look like? I mean, here we are at a point where equity markets are just blowing past expectations uh, that analysts said at the beginning of the year are already. Um, these are high expectations that these, uh, that these companies have to deliver on. Are they going to be able to do it?
3: I think the short answer to that is yes, uh, because technology can and will always move forward. So no matter what type of market blips that we see, the, mo- the world is moving toward the cloud, and the world is moving toward flexibility and, and enhanced productivity. And any businesses that allow you to augment and optimize um, that productivity and flexibility by via companies that either build the cloud or leverage the cloud uh, will continue uh, to benefit. But, uh, you know, from a macro sense, you know, we do have cause for concern, you know. When you, whenever you open up the economy, when you shut it down and open it up with a flip of a switch, you know there is going to be a huge bottleneck on the supply side. So, inflation, even though the, t- in the companies that we are investing are deflationary, which gives us confidence in them, but we will have, uh, likely have, you know, inflationary risks near term, and some of these stocks, you know, that do have high growth, super high growth, and high multiples associated with them. Uh, could certainly be under pressure. You know, the analogy we make is kind of like a traffic accident. Hmm. Um, you know, it, even though you clear the accident, you know, it will still take a lot of time for the um, the traffic to clear up. Um, and that's kind of how we're thinking about the supply constraints of the world and, and what the implications on pricing and, and inflation and associated interest rates.
1: Hey, James, how do you make sense of kind of old economy, new economy, Ford versus Tesla or, you know, Whirlpool, that's an old economy, but they definitely benefited during the pandemic. We've talked with the CEO on air and he says, folks have been at home cooking and spending more time at home. He doesn't anticipate that's going to change anytime soon that consumer habits don't change that quickly, but it's an old economy company versus, you know, an Amazon where we can shop online and do things differently. How do you make sense? How do you make investment decisions? Cause you've got a little bit of both. In your portfolios
3: yeah it's it's uh you know whirlpool like it's interesting it's not really a tech company yeah. per se in the traditional sense but it's a savior the, the, the in my
1: house if i've got a dishwasher the, though and wash machine <laughs> <Same> <laughs> just to say well
3: the, the the changes they're making on the production side you know they're getting much more efficient in their manufacturing capabilities and um and they have been the low-cost uh, uh manufacturer of appliances and and the more efficiencies are able to drive on that they'll be able to improve their asset turnover and in turn um see appreciation in the shares and and you've been seeing that um but as far as the new economy versus old really boiled the way we look at it is boiled down to their dna you know are they willing to make the sacrifices that may cause near-term pain in terms of margin and growth you know to to be able to adapt or um are they going to be stuck in their old ways and, and, and try to eke out as much cash flow as possible? Now, a company like Intel, for example, they're actually trying to rip the Band-Aid off and, and become something new, um, a manufacturing company that could ultimately hurt their profit performance over the near term. So it, it really boils down to, are the, if it is a legacy company, are they willing to adapt? If the answer is no, then they're out. If the answer is yes, then we'll take a look. And as far as the new companies go, it's are they uh, aligned uh to take advantage of the cloud and be able to you know grow their customer base independent of geo right. location and 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 continue to um pass on ultimately consumer surplus in the term in the in the in with respect to time savings because ultimately anything that saves you time wins hey. so if you look at any company that succeeding right now they save businesses or consumers time in some way shape or form
1: all right we're gonna leave it on that note james nice to check in with you have a wonderful weekend james chakmack he's partner and technology analyst at clockwise capital on the phone from miami
0: thanks for listening to bloomberg business week download the podcast on itunes soundcloud or bloomberg.com
1: and you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m eastern on bloomberg radio or watch us on youtube search bloomberg global news